I'm Victoria Papa. I'm an assistant professor of English at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. And I'm Levi Prombaum, the ACLS Leading Edge Fellow at MassMOCA. And welcome to CARA Podcast, the official podcast of CARA Syllabus, a justice-oriented public education and community resource of MassMOCA and MCLA. CARA Syllabus makes space for pressing dialogues about CARA, featuring conversations for and by activists, artists, academics, students, and our community members in and beyond the Berkshires. The inaugural episode of Care of Podcasts grows directly out of our work with artist Wendy Redstar, guest curator of the first Care Syllabus module, Reconnecting Objects with Their Homes, which launched in December 2020. As part of Redstar's explorations of care in relation to her Upsalaga heritage, she touches upon healthcare in Indigenous communities, interviewing her mother, a retired public health nurse, about the unique circumstances of healthcare on the Upsalaga reservation, past and present. For today's podcast, we're continuing the conversation by bringing together two members of the Berkshires community, Heather Bruegel, Director of Cultural Affairs for the Stockbridge-Munsee Community, and Dr. Nicole Porter, Assistant Professor of Biology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. In their conversation, Bruegel and Porter addressed the coronavirus vaccine rollout in marginalized communities. They discussed persisting systemic violence that contributes to vaccine anxiety, better strategies for educating our communities on how to protect against the virus, and the potentials of proactive intersectional public health planning. My name is Heather and I'm really excited to to be here today. I work for the Stockbridge Muncie community out here in Boulder, Wisconsin, and I'm the Director of Cultural Affairs, but I'm also a historian and lecturer um, on Indigenous history and issues that affect the Indigenous community, um, whether that be, you know, the current COVID pandemic or other issues of intergenerational trauma, depression, the MMIW movement, uh, you know, things like that. So um, I'm really excited, uh, you know, to do a little talking today and uh, see where we can go from there. And I am Nicole Porter. I'm a professor at MCLA, Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. And I actually teach a lot of public health and community health education classes. And my research is more along the lines of health disparities, particularly in African-Americans and focusing more so in terms of like chronic diseases, particularly renal and stage um, diseases. And um, I'm glad that I get to speak about this because it's something that we talk a lot about, especially in our intro classes when we talk about health disparities. So we don't just only focus on um, one particular group, because obviously there are so many different marginalized populations within the United States that we need to focus on, right, when we're talking about health. And with COVID-19, obviously, we've seen a lot of these things being highlighted, inequities within the health system. So thanks for having me here. I guess what, what I would love to know about right now um, this, this is something that we've been talking about in our classes is this concept of vaccine hesitancy. And I want to know whether or not you are encountering that, if you've seen that a lot within the indigenous populations. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great topic to bring up. And, you know, I've, you know, reading reports and things like that, where there is this, this vaccine hesitancy and, and the fact that it actually has a name now, I think is, is kind of important. It just goes to show the uncertainty that some people have in regards to taking the vaccine. I will say here in our community here, I haven't heard too much of it. Um, people are actually, at least the ones that I've encountered are super excited, 
to get the vaccine because it's kind of like a door opening. Like it's, it's that one step, you know, where you, yes, you're still going to mask and social distance, but it's kind of almost like that step that this is going to be over soon. Like it's just, it's kind of a, like a breath of fresh air. And so I know like one of my coworkers gets her first shot tomorrow. She's super stoked about it. And, but, so I haven't heard too much of, of, you know, that vaccine hesitancy. Um, in fact, I just hear, I'm hearing more excitement about it, whether it's in our community or whether people that I come in contact to as a whole, I think in communities of color, um, I can understand well why there would be vaccine hesitancy, but I also understand and I'm hearing more so of the excitement of getting it because this pandemic has just hit communities of color so much harder than it has hit the rest of the, the world or the country. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, um, hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel, I think is now kind of what we're seeing, wouldn't you say? No, I'm happy for that too, but it's mixed for me in terms of the yeah. feedback that I'm getting. There are some people that are very much excited about it then you can also break that down in terms of their um, education background, right? So some people who may be aware of what vaccines are and how they work, um, they would be a little bit more excited. While you still have a lot of people who are, for the lack of a better word, ignorant about the process of vaccines and just the little um, technicalities involved, it's very scary for them, that process. And then I was reading a great article the other day about they were again talking and they brought up the whole idea of Tuskegee, right? Mm. And that whole, and this is why, at least with the African-American community, you still have a lot of people who are very much um, concerned, right? For lack of a better word, yeah. they're concerned about what, is, what it is that's going to be put inside their bodies. And then you also have a lot of misinformation um, and a lot of, I would say sometimes, um, and it, I would say deliberate mis guidance and miseducation of the Black population, you know, um, in terms of, and I don't know, some people might think it's a conspiracy theory, because, and I've heard this from different individuals that sometimes they think that getting a vaccine is one way of, um, it's probably like genocide for them, you know, because now you're introduced, again, because they don't know how vaccines work, and they think, again, it's a, a way of introducing more disease into their communities, and then they're going to die, <laughs> so you know, say so have that, that some people are also dealing with as well. Um, That's I, totally understandable too. Yeah, right. So it's very interesting. And it's how, it's, the question is, how do you counteract that? You know, and, um, and then also too, I'm like thinking about the media in terms of how they also portray this and how they, they educate because they do have a lifespan, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see the idea. Uh, I think, the coverage of the pandemic in general has kind of been somewhat problematic in the fact that, um, especially with news reaching communities of color and the indigenous community, um, it's, you know, right from the start, the Navajo Nation was hit very hard right off the bat. And um, it wasn't really reported on. It was you know, even before numbers started to rise in the United States as a whole, Navajo Nation was struggling already. They were already, you know, their numbers were in the double digits and the triple digits and, you know, just continued to go up from there. And I think the reporting that happened, um, you know, kind of almost downplaying the effect didn't really take into consideration um, 
communities of color and marginalized communities. I think they kind of were left out and, um, you know, kind of thought of as, you know, an afterthought where, yes, you know, the population as a whole might not be suffering so much, but when you break down those communities, they are suffering. And I think, you know, the way, um, you know, resources and things like that were getting to these communities was slow and completely irresponsible. And I think, you know, I, I agree with you when you say, you know, the, you know, the reporting has something to do with it as well with, you know, um, what it, clickbait, you know, you, you see a headline, a flashy seen fears. And not to mention when you brought up the, um, you know, the Tuskegee, you know, studies that were going on, but then also studies that were happening here in the indigenous community historically with forced sterilization of women. And then, you know, prior to, you know, even that um, smallpox pandemics breaking out in indigenous communities. And so there is some leeriness out there. And I think the best way we can combat that is with education. Right. And some of those things were deliberate too, right? They, um, I'm thinking with smallpox, well, definitely forced sterilization was deliberate, but I know with smallpox, it was not just accidental, which a lot of people assume it would have been. Some of it was also deliberately. Um, Absolutely. There were, there were jokes that were made at the beginning of the pandemic from those of us in the Indigenous community about, um, you know, telling our non-Indigenous friends, you know, to not accept any blankets from people's you do, people right. you don't know. While we were making those jokes in jest, there's some historical content behind that joke. So, absolutely. So, you had, I want to kind of go back a bit to what you had said in terms of the numbers were rising and Joel hit very hard early on. Why do you think that contributed to those early high numbers, you know, the incidence of um, COVID? And yeah, no, I the think the severity of it. Yeah, I think what this pandemic did most, most importantly is it brought to light some of the inequities that we have in society. And particularly for Navajo Nation, they have not had clean water in decades, decades. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, Flint hasn't had clean water in a really long time, but Navajo Nation hasn't had clean water longer. And that has to do with the uranium mining that was happening, you know, on their reservation land and that seeping into the water and not having running water, um, you know, in homes. You know, a lot of times reservations are in very um, rural and des um, desolate areas where there's not access to things like electricity, running water, why is that? That's because that was the land that was considered unsettleable by those who were pushing Native nations onto that land. And so being forced there in these areas where you don't have access to these resources um, and, you know, everybody's saying, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds, you know, you know, have clean air circulating through your homes. How are you going to tell somebody to wash their hands for 20 seconds when they can't even get a clean drink of water? It's, it's, it's absolutely abhorrent. And I think, you know, his, there are historical forces that came into play as to why, you know, in indigenous communities, the pandemic just skyrocketed. We don't have access to the, to clean and running water in some areas. You don't have access to electricity. And then take into consideration the fact that the way, um, the relationship between the federal government and native nations is extremely paternalistic and not being able to receive um, funding that you might need for your tribal clinics 
um, having to work through Indian health services who don't have hospitals at capacities that are, you know, some of these big cities. I was reading an article um, at some point last year where I believe it was in South Dakota, some of the reservations were talking about, you know, we have an ICU that has two beds. That's it. That's all they have. So if they're, that's why, you know, you saw some Native nations actually in South Dakota shut down entries into their reservations, do checkpoints for non-Native uh, people who are coming through the reservation, um, doing temperature checks because they have to protect their communities because in some areas there are only, you know, uh, small rural hospitals that only have two ICU beds. Yeah, so it's just, it's, it was difficult. And I think that's why the numbers went so high so fast. And then I also know that there also, um, there were people that were still deliberately visiting, right? Because I, I, I saw, I, I'm thinking about, uh, where, where was it? And I don't want to get a place, was it in Dakota? I'm, I will get it wrong. But you still had outsiders coming into these particular communities who were asymptomatic, right? And of course, yeah. they were just, coming to these particular communities and they would spread it. And then of course you have to think about, I guess I'm assuming within that particular culture, right? Everybody's in a close knit community. Nobody has space to isolate. Right. right? That's a, that's right. A so nobody has the space to go and say, okay, I, I can stay in this room all by myself, you know, because you're sharing a room with, it's multi-generational. Absolutely. Right. And that is something that we needed to be cognizant of and yeah, so. Yeah, it's, you know, it was really, it's really difficult. I mean, granted, you know, I think numbers have come under control. I haven't looked at, in the past couple of days. As I, at some point, I stopped looking at COVID numbers because right. it was it was extremely depressing. And then, you know, you've right. got to, you know, remember to take that on. But like for myself, you know, um, coming in contact with elders or, or things like that, uh, history bearers, cultural bearers, bearers. Um, you know, being extremely cautious because I don't live on a reservation. I live off reservation and travel to it to work every day. And so making sure that, you know, I'm taking those extra precautions, you know, when I'm out, like when we, um, when the world seemed to shut down last March, I shut down right along with it. I did not leave my house and, you know, even to go to the grocery store. And I recognize in that aspect that I'm privileged that I was able to, you know, order groceries online or have them delivered or, you know, not having to really go out uh, in the world very much. But, you know, what about those who who couldn't, who had to keep going out Mm -hmm. and working those jobs, you know, at the fast food restaurants or the gas stations, who primarily works those jobs, those who live in communities of color. And so that's where the, but it's just not the same. So I'm wondering a question for you, how from a public health standpoint, can we, you know, handle that in communities of color and indigenous communities? What can we do to help our people, you know, get through that and understand, you know, this is a beneficial thing. Well, as you just said, part of it is how well we explain it and do it in a way that is culturally relevant and responsive because I'm thinking of the word surveillance. We use a lot of that a lot, right? Public health surveillance. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of, that is a trigger for some people. You are spying on me, surveillance, right? And that brings in that anxiety or whatnot, those other feelings. So part of it is just being very diligent in the words we use, right? Mm-hmm. As well as also, I think one of the things that we always say, and, and this comes with education in different areas, different disciplines, 
you try to educate the people that would have the largest sway within a community. And they in turn can yeah. also be that advocate and convince the, the others who look up to them, right? So, so like anytime we do public health research, we always talk to, again, like maybe church elders or maybe certain, mm-hmm. certain not all, political leaders because everybody respects them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it might maybe certain um, educators, you know, teachers, people who, or maybe even the, that's if you have faith in your um, healthcare provider, maybe it's a community right. or whatnot if you have that relationship so those are the kind of people that you would go to to hopefully spread that information and communicate you know the um and share that knowledge in a way that hopefully the community would be very much more responsive than if it's somebody external coming to tell them okay you need to do this you even need for you to be able to tell us where you have been who you have been in contact with because you're not going to trust that individual you want to know what they're going to use that information for you know so right uh, we need to be very much diligent in how we go about it and also to do like just the words i, I really that's a big part of it what words we use so we and yeah it's part that's a big responsibility that we need to take you know yeah absolutely i think you know i told i think I appreciate that answer because I think it, I think it's a good idea. If you can get those people that are respected in the community to buy in right. to what needs to be done, then you get more community involvement in. And then I'm also wondering too, you know, with, I mean, you know, we've had pandemics in the past or in the middle right. of one now, this surely isn't going to be the last one. So how do we, how do we going forward prepare for the next one for those communities of color that were hit so hard this time. What do we, do we, I know we, I mentioned we talk, you know, there were so many uh, disparities and inequities that were brought to life. How do we combat that? So when this happens again, from a public health standpoint, those people aren't left out. Right. And that's the million dollar question. I think, well, clearly we need to address the underlying social issues. Right. Like you mentioned clean water yeah. for one. That's a big thing that we need to be addressing. Something that many people take for granted. And it's uh, and so basic. And it's so right, right? It's a need. Right. And as well as also to we really need to be intentional with our preventive services, preventative services. Because mm-hmm. if you notice a lot of the problems that um have happened within the indigenous communities as well as other marginalized communities, these people who have died or who've been hit really hard had underlying health conditions that could have been prevented. Right. Whether or not it's diabetes, whether or not it's going to be, um, well, we talk about obesity is not a disease, it's not a disease, but it's a precursor to many other types of diseases. So whether it's um, other types of cardiovascular diseases, et cetera. And that's a big issue that we need to address the fact that we have so many unhealthy um, people within our marginalized communities, things that can be um, prevented, things that are preventable, just and part of it is because we don't have access, right, just to basic services, just for normal checkups, things that, again, I, I take it for granted that I can go to my healthcare provider, not just whenever I feel like, but my yearly um, appointments, just to make sure everything is aging as a trip, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was joking about that. I guess it's an aging. Um, but um, 
So yeah, so those are these just very, very simple things. Um, nutrition as well, you know, being able to access healthy meals because again, within a rural community, we I think I see some people assuming that if you live in a rural area, more than likely you're surrounded by farmlands. That's not that is not necessarily true. So if you're right. surrounded by farmlands, you're able to access food. Again, another myth, right? So 100%. One, exactly. So we actually have people in rural communities who live in deserts, food deserts. And this in turn also impact their health outcome, right? And we're seeing, again, how it played out in terms of the response to the pandemic. So, I mean, part of it is, again, we need to really, really address just the underlying causes. And that is, that is just going to be those health disparities, those SES. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Two things I want to highlight that you just said, um, you know, those underlying health conditions, you know, that affect communities of color even harder than they do the general population. I know in the indigenous community, it's diabetes and heart disease. Those right. are number one and number two. And we both know that, you know, having those underlying conditions puts you at higher risk of, you know, actually, um, you know, getting COVID-19. But then I think the other important thing too that you brought up is food scarcity. I mean, most reservations are in very rural, desolate areas that, I mean, even here where I'm at, yeah, we're surrounded by farms, but that that's not, those aren't our farms. It's not your, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, to get to a proper grocery store where you can get fruits and vegetables right. is an hour in any direction. Right. So I mean that, you know, addressing those, those food deserts and those underlying health conditions in, you know, indigenous communities and communities of color, I think, you know, I think you're spot on. I think if we can address those, then we might be able to be prepared next time. Yeah, that's positive preparedness. And then the other part, as I said, is how we allocate money. Because, I mean, I'm just thinking, I don't want to get too much into politics. I know the previous administration, they cut funding, right, for disaster planning. This is disaster planning. People assume a disaster would be some sort of natural disaster, which in a way this is technically right, this virus, whatnot. But they assume it's going to be like a hurricane or what's a it called? Flood, tornado. Right, things like that. This is a disaster. This is all part of disaster planning. And um, again, it goes back to how much money we, or how much we used to value public health. Because one of the things that we look at, if you look at distribution, looking at how much money is spent in, in terms of the um, percentages of the GDP spent on public health um, services, it's less than what, 3% or less. Absolutely ridiculous. But if but we still have a very costly health system. Mm-hmm. What, is the, what, the, what does that say? It says more that we are just very much reactive and we're not proactive, right? Exactly. So we pay for, to treat but we don't, we don't want to pay to prevent. And, and if you look at the, um, I'm not an economist or whatnot, but common sense <laughs> would dictate that obviously you would spend less money in the long run preventing something than having to treat for a chronic condition that you will be living with until the end of your days. Right? Yes, common sense would dictate that. Common, right, so, and that's the biggest issue too. It's like, oh, we, we should have been thinking of outside the box, not just only focusing on of the natural disasters as um, part of disaster planning, but also we, the fact is that we do have, we've had, lived through pandemics, as you said before, it is, you kind of have to believe the science as well, believe some of your scientists, 
part of it, we do know that these things are inevitable, right? We are always going to have, have to deal with certain um, viruses and bacteria. We, they're all organisms that are competing with us. And the other thing is that we need to also really start investing in these preventative services. We really need to start investing in public health measures, right? Whether it's not education, when it's actually yeah. having the healthcare facilities, um, trying to think what else. It's just so much different infrastructure that we can put our money towards, right? Absolutely. I mean, I agree with you 100%. I, I don't even... Well, I, I just thought it was really unacceptable that there is a vaccine shortage. Because again, if disaster planning meant that you should have been allocating money towards this, as well as also right. coordinating with different biotech companies, pharmaceutical companies, right? So should something like this happen, it's very easy for them to mobilize and to shift the, whatever their productions, whatever it is that they were doing to shift everything towards creating and putting out these particular vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. And that would have been a part of a, a proper disaster plan. At least that's how I envisioned it in my head. So you would have money allocated already and you, and, but, and I pretty know, like you, you could be working with whatever pharmaceutical companies or get everybody on board, right? Yeah. It's all going to be part of coordinating with these different, um, some of them will be private entities, some of them would have been like not for profit or whatnot. And you get everybody on board and say, okay, as soon as this happens, this is where the money's going to go. Everybody stopped producing whatever. We're going to just be producing things that we would need. Like when we're talking about when we need those masks, for example, start producing masks, start producing those hand sanitizers start um, working on getting that vaccine and coordinating together, sharing that information. So we could have um, at least not been in the situation where we say we have people that are waiting to get vaccinated, right? In these different states. Right. And then also too, we have these poor communities um, that are being taken advantage of too, right? Because you mm -hmm. see these individuals that are going and jumping ahead of the line and whatnot. It should not be this way. And I'm from, I'm from a different country. So I'm also concerned that you're gonna have a lot of these poor nations that are gonna be left out. They will get a citizen. And that's a me. And so I'm, so I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. And um, I think our government only ordered about, we have 3 million people. And I think they only ordered about um, maybe 400,000 um, of the doses. And so they divide that by two because it was received two. Doses. So it's really 200,000 people that are going to get vaccinated. And it's not guaranteed that they will get more anytime soon, like after right. they vaccinate. So, and that's a concern, and much as other countries that probably, I don't even know how much more like they would be getting and how frequent they would be getting that, you know? And right. it's not, so. I think it's just, I think to summarize the whole thing, it's just poor planning all the way around. Right. And those who suffer are those who are marginalized the most. And that right. would be the indigenous and communities of color. Right. You know, those, those are the ones who suffer the most, I think. And um, it's sad. And I, you know, I wish there was something more that we can do. But I think because of the poor planning and the poor leadership and the unclear communication. Communication um, is major. Right? It, it took a toll. I'm hoping now that, um, you know, with things becoming a little bit more clearer um, and, you know, change in leadership. I'm hoping now we can finally 
flatten that curve right. and get people, you know, the help that they so desperately need right. and the help that we're, that we're seeing needed, you know, for those, those single parents, you know, or the kiddos or, you know, things like that, who people who really need it. I'm hoping that, you know, we can, you know, help them now. And then I'm also hoping that from this pandemic, from the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 and 2021, that we learn from it. Yes. And don't create those same mistakes in the future. Right. I agree. Yeah. I really, really do. <sighs> we don't need a repeat of this at all. No. Not I, at laugh all. And, I laugh when people say we don't <laughs> want to go back to a sense of normalcy. I'm like wondering what is normal after this. I don't. I, well, you, what are you going to say? Ahead. Oh, I was just going to say if... um. If normal is, you know, what it was before, I don't want that because we've uncovered so many, you know, inequities. I was about to say the same thing. It's so great for some people. So let's not go back to that. You know? Yeah. Let's let's try to go forward in a more inclusive right. exactly. manner. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't want that old normal. Yeah, I want this agreed. new normal where we're working towards that equality right. and inclusivity. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Oh, good. Great minds think alike. <laughs>Thank you for listening to Care of Podcast, a production of Care Syllabus, a new partnership between MassMoca and the Mind's Eye at MCLA. This podcast was produced by Jonah Bayer with music by Ketza. To learn more about how artists, academics, activists, and members from our community are reimagining a more just and equitable world by centering care in their everyday lives, please visit caresyllabus.org and follow at caresyllabus on Instagram and Twitter.